Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Gene Berdachewski, co-founder and CEO of Sela Nanotechnologies. Sela's developed a silicon-based anode to replace graphite and lithium-ion batteries. The company claims its materials can improve the energy density of batteries by 20%, which would be a big deal. Prior to co-founding Sela, Gene was employee 7 at Tesla, where he served as principal engineer on the Roadster battery and led the development of the world's first safe mass-produced automotive lithium-ion battery system. We cover a lot in this episode, including the Sela origin story, their long vision, where they are on that trajectory today, what's coming next, some of the headwinds and some of the changes that could be made that could help accelerate Sela's adoption. And we also talk about the impact that Sela can have if they're successful in their efforts. And finally, we talk about this type of deep tech innovation in general, how to make a thousand flowers bloom in terms of how to not only have more of these types of companies pop up, but to help them reach their full potential as it relates to widespread adoption. And we talk about how this type of innovation fits in to the broader climate fight and how Gene thinks about the climate change problem. It's a great episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Gene Berdachevsky, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here, uh, and thank you as well for the wonderful tour I just got of your facility. It's quite an impressive operation. Thank you. Yeah, we have some big equipment here. Yeah, and I was telling you before we hit record, uh, you know, I come from like the consumer app world and uh, very different from this kind of hard tech innovation. But because I have, you know, the way I'm assessing things that are interesting to me are the things that can have the biggest impact on climate change. An important piece of that is more of this hard tech innovation. So it's been causing me increasingly to spend time down this path. But yours is the one with the biggest scale that I've seen so far. So it was fascinating just to walk around this facility and to talk to you a bit about the magnitude of what you're doing and, and your ambition because it, you know, yours is maybe more of a, you know, like a teenager heading off to college where I've been spending more of my time in, uh, you know, in grade school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, we've had about eight years to get this far, but it's still early days from the scale that we need to grow to. The production increase that you saw as we walked around was about 5,000x from the R&D scale, but we have tens of thousands X more to go to cover the world with our technology for it to be in every electric car, for it to be frankly in every car sold, uh, and then also on the grid. Well, as you know, this is my climate journey. And so each episode, it's about learning and trying to get myself up to speed on gaps in my knowledge. And there's a number of areas that are interesting about what you're doing for me. But maybe for starters, let's just take it from the top. What's Sela Nanotechnologies? Yeah, so we're a battery technology company. And very distinctly, we're, we're actually not a battery company. So we make a new kind of chemistry, uh, which is really a material that goes into uh, an existing battery. That material increases the amount of energy every battery can store. And by increasing the amount of energy every battery can store, we can reduce the cost on a dollar per kilowatt hour basis, which means you can have electric vehicles that are lower cost up front or have longer range. Our technology also works in consumer devices. So we can actually just make your iPhone last longer or your uh, wireless earbuds have additional features. And so we ship this material that we manufacture, that we've invented, that we manufacture today to battery makers who then will put it into uh, lithium ion cells that they make that go into every application where lithium ion is today. And uh, batteries are a confusing one for me because on the one hand, I hear that, for example, EV penetration is essential and it's going to produce so much extra capacity that is then going to fundamentally make solar and wind more possible and is going to eliminate the need for baseload and, and on and on, right? But then I also hear about material shortages and waste and compressed life cycles and how's it going to scale and intermittency. And I mean, I guess that's just on the energy side. And of course, there's applications, as you described, and consumer devices and, and all these other things. But if I'm thinking with a climate hat on, how should I think about batteries? 
They're absolutely essential to solving the climate problem, both in vehicles and on the grid. And so we can kind of cover those two things. Like I said, the tech works in consumer, but really our mission longer term is to get into cars and then eventually into grid. And it'll be in two stages, cars first, because the value of improving the technology in cars is, is much higher than, than on the grid. But on the grid, you needed to get past a certain amount of solar and wind penetration. So let's start with maybe with cars. There's shortages uh, of materials, but really only at at different scales. So today we have about 2 million plug-in cars that were sold last year worldwide. And this year it looks like we'll probably have about 3 million, so about 50% growth. And we've had that year-over-year growth for about a decade, actually. And it's not about to slow down anytime soon. So about... So in the next seven or eight years, we'll get to something like 20, 30 million plug-in cars sold worldwide. The amount of battery capacity produced today is only keeping up with that, but new factories are going in every single year right now. And so there's no shortage of being able to make the batteries. But then you go one step deeper, which is what are the materials that are going into those batteries? And on the anode side, it's graphite, which we're replacing with our silicon technology over time. On the cathode side, it's metal oxide. And really, there's a couple of shortages there of cobalt in the long run, but we see a path where that can be replaced. It can be replaced with nickel in the short term. It can be replaced with copper and iron in the longer run. So we don't think there's a long-term problem there. And on the graphite side, it can be replaced with silicon technology, which again comes from sand and energy. And so there really isn't a long-term shortage there either. So there are no limits on where, how much battery production you can get for, for EVs. And then the way EVs will connect to the grid is that they will drive down the cost of batteries by just the sheer scale and by the innovation like ours and others that are going to be deployed in automotive. And what will start to happen is batteries will get so good for EVs where today maybe the best battery, it's a little expensive, but might get you half a million miles of use. Over time, that'll become a million mile battery, a three million mile battery, a five million mile battery. And what that really means is becoming a 30 year battery that can be used on the grid and coupled with solar and wind in a way where you do have essentially base load where you can use lithium ion to shift the energy around every couple of days as needed for 30 years at an upfront cost that'll be about half of what it is today. And that's a complete game changer. And so you can get to a place where solar wind, which are already there from a cost perspective, coupled with batteries that'll ride the back of EV innovation, solve most of the challenges you have. So what is the path that led you to becoming a battery entrepreneur? So I, um, I can now say this. I've worked on lithium-ion batteries for half my life. Uh, I actually started as a freshman at Stanford uh, building solar cars. I'm wearing one of my vintage solar car shirts here. And uh, started playing with lithium-ion batteries in, uh, back then. And then ended up dropping out of school to join Tesla as the seventh employee and, and led the battery development for the Tesla Roadster pack. And then I got really interested well, in... Yeah. I, I want to pause you for one second because I listened to your episode with Emily on what it takes. And I know this is supposed to be a climate change podcast, but your story of how you landed that job at Tesla is amazing. <laughs> so if you don't mind, can we take a quick detour to hear it? Sure. Yeah. No, <laughs> like, it was... I think it will inspire many, many, many throngs of, of new college graduates or, or even current college students or high school. Or I mean, I, I just, I don't know. It struck me. So. Sure. No, <laughs> happy to happy to tell it. Um I fell in love with two things in college. One was energy, building solar cars. We built something that could go 55 miles an hour on 1,500 watts power of a toaster. And the other thing I fell in love with was sort of the venture model. I saw how I learned about how Silicon Valley builds these amazing companies. And so I actually wrote a business plan for selling electric sports cars in the US market. And then sort of six months later, learned a couple entrepreneurs who were working on this. And I was like, they stole my idea. And so one of the folks working there was J.B. Straubel, who just recently left as the CTO of Tesla. And he was a solar car alum. And so I called him up and I went to his house and I basically made him tell me about this and uh, said, listen, I'll drop out. I'll join you guys. I'll sweep the floors. I'll do whatever you need me to. And he said, no, well, let me, let me talk with some folks. So I said, okay. So he said, go away. I get a call maybe three, four days later from one of the co-founders. And uh, he says, you know, listen, we're going to England for two weeks. When we get back, we'll interview you. And I said, well, I think you're here now, right? He's like, yeah. Okay, well, when, when do you leave? In three days? Well, can I meet you before? No, we're really busy. 
okay, well, what airport are you leaving from? He said, uh, SFO, what time? Six o'clock. How about I meet you there two hours before and you interview me right there? And I think he was a little shocked and he just said, sure, <laughs> why not? And so I, uh, yeah, I drove up to SFO, interviewed with uh, Martin Eberhardt there when he was on his way to Lotus to negotiate the contract for the Roadster. Lotus was a partner. So for the Roadster, they were negotiating a contract, how they would partner. And he hired me on the spot. I called my parents. I said, I'm quitting school. And they had a f- little freak out for a few minutes, but then it uh, turned out okay. Uh, the reason I think that story matters so much is that we can get into details of the science and the research and why now's the right time and the investors and the market and the problem it's solving and all that. But like, even with all those, all those things matter, but without that story that you just told, these companies don't make it, right? And, and, and so that, that speaks volumes to the stuff that doesn't show up in, in a slide deck. Yeah, I think you need people who really want to make an impact and don't care about all the other stuff. And then you got to give them a, a way to do that, right? And I think I think the venture model is actually a good one. And, uh, and I think that gives people with a huge amount of passion, a huge amount of drive, a way to make a huge impact on stuff that really matters. And, you know, maybe even connecting it to, to some of the other topics, you know, you talk about is I'm a big believer that if you make a great product, that just happens to be green, that people want to buy, that's the best way to massively accelerate adoption of clean technologies. And so I think that was that was the insight at the founding of Tesla was we're just going to, an electric car was going to cost $100,000 no matter what you built. And so Martin asked the question of, well, if it's going to cost $100,000, what do people buy for $100,000? And it turns out it's a sports car. And it turns out you could make it go zero to 60 in four seconds and you could, you know, it could be an amazing car. And so half the people who bought that Roadster were just sports car fanatics. It just happened to be green. Yeah. Pat Brown from Impossible Foods, who came on the show a while back, said the exact same thing. They don't even target the vegetarians. They don't target people that eat veggie burgers. They target meat lovers. It's got to taste better, (laughs) right? You look at other successes, look at the Nest, right? It's just a beautiful product. You want to buy it. It costs more than a regular thermostat, but then it helps you save energy, right? All these things, the things that really make an impact are just better products. And even solar and wind, you know, most of the money going into solar and wind today isn't there to do good. It's there to make a higher return than what they can do in a coal plant or something like that. And so the key is how do you create these products? How do you create these technologies where you can deploy hundreds of billions of dollars, a trillion dollars, because the ROI is higher than on something that's you know gonna muck up the environment. So you were just starting to go down the path of telling me the story of how you got to be a battery entrepreneur, and then I made you tell that uh, Tesla story, but detour over. So you, you got to Tesla, employee seven. So I got to Tesla, I, I spent four years there doing the Tesla Roadster, we launched that, that was sort of my baby. And I, then I got interested in the science of the battery. And what's interesting is you know Tesla rode this cost reduction in lithium ion that started from 1991 to about 2004. And by the time I left in 2008, the cost reduction had largely stopped and the performance improvements had largely stopped. And some of the narrative that's out there today that batteries are coming down in the last few years by an order of magnitude is just not accurate. You know, I was buying really, really inexpensive batteries in 2005. And so what I saw is this was stalling and the question was why? And it turns out that what happened was we were starting to reach the theoretical limits of the chemistry. And so I wanted to go study that. And so I left and went back to Stanford and spent a couple of years and I had ultimately gotten my undergrad after dropping out and got a master's degree in material science and sort of energy resources and and a bunch of different topics that were just near and dear to my heart. And then I'd gotten to meet some venture capitalists throughout my time. And one of them, who's our our, our lead investor, Mike Spizer from Sutter Hill, said, why don't you come here and be an entrepreneur in residence and try to start a company? And if we like it, we'll invest. And when you went back to school at that time, or even when you're at Tesla, for that matter, did you always have ambition to ultimately be an entrepreneur? 100%. I think I was plotting how I'm going to build my company from the day I walked into Tesla, because again, I had this feeling that, hey, I had this idea too. Why am I not the one building this? And, you know, ultimately I sort of learned a ton of how you build a great company from that, got a bunch of good things out of, out of the experience, but I was already thinking, how am I going to do this one day myself? Yeah. And, and I forgot to ask you, what was it about this category that led you to why anchor here when it came to writing business plans and things like that? What was the pull? It was just cool. And again, it was sort of built on that solar car experience from my freshman and sophomore years where two horsepower, you could go 55 miles an hour. 
And so why does my car have 200 horsepower? What's the inefficiency from? I mean, energy is really, really cool. And we were doing it with solar and we were doing it with lithium ion batteries. And so it's just really cool. There's no better reason not to start. But then as I kind of got into it, as I learned more about the kind of the global energy industry and, and markets and, and sort of the opportunities, it's not just cool. It's it's fundamentally underpins our entire society, w- what our energy infrastructure is and our way of living. And as countries develop, there's a tremendous amount more of this to be built. And there's a huge amount of innovation available. It's not true that we're done with innovating on energy. So what was the game plan when you went to Sutter Hill? So the idea was, for me, Sutter Hill is, is one of the oldest firms uh, in Silicon Valley. It's one of the most successful firms you've never heard of, and they like it that way. And so what I wanted to understand, you know, I had just come from Tesla, which was successful, but I had just watched almost everything else in clean tech come to a crater, right? So a bunch of companies had billions of dollars of investment, some, you know, billion apiece for, for some of the solar players that ultimately went bankrupt. And so I had a question in my mind, which was, what did they do wrong? You know, what did Tesla do right? And how do you build venture backable energy companies that can succeed? And that was not part of your studies, but you came out thinking about that question. Yeah. And even while I was at Tesla, again, I'm looking at these companies, I'm interested in, do I want to build a solar company one day? Do I want to do something in wind? But I ultimately want to be successful. So how do I actually make it a good business? And so that was, that was a big part of it is even while I was at Stanford, I was thinking about this, but certainly an opportunity to spend a year with, you know, some of the best investors in the Valley understanding how they look at businesses and applying that to the field of energy where I know a lot, where I'm a domain expert, was really my uh, my impetus for going there and sort of accepting that. And, you know, I, I sort of did just that. I, I learned how to see the world through their lens, which is a lens of, will this ultimately make a lot of money and apply that to stuff that I was really excited about. And so the, the key insight I think for that I got out of that was you need to build products that create value, not just reduce cost. And so a lot of the reasons solar sort of failed in the, in the clean tech boom is they're all trying to get a little bit cheaper than the next guy and a little bit cheaper than the grid. And that's a really hard proposition because there's no margin for error. And what a startup needs is margin for error because nothing goes as planned and it always takes longer and it always costs more. So if your business plan pencils out only just you might as well not start that startup. It has to pencil out with some margin so that when things go wrong, you can still be successful. And so in our case, in the case of batteries, one of the most important things is that there's this incredibly high value market, which is the battery that's in your pocket. And so there's about two cents of graphite in your pocket that when we replace with our technology, your phone with no changes will last 20, 25, 40% longer. Two cents. And so there's a $1,000 device that's being limited by some 30-year-old technology that we can replace, and we can charge more than two cents for it. And so that gives us an opportunity to start with a value-priced product that allows us to get the economics. You know, The production line you saw here might be big and impressive, but it's not at a scale that's going to make the product cheap enough for millions of cars. That's going to be at the next scale. But this is at a scale where we can get into consumer devices, wireless earbuds, smartwatches. And if you really think about it, it's the same model as what Tesla took, right? Where the Roadster was this very high value product that people who valued it bought. And it was a great deal for them, faster than a Lamborghini that you could buy for twice the price. So it's fantastic economics. And that allowed the Model S. The Model S was, again, better than a 7 Series. And then that was allowed for the Model 3. And that'll ultimately allow for an even lower cost car. And so we're going to follow that path in many ways. And I think that's something that's really important to building a business is finding high value markets early. I think you're hitting on a really key point because... This whole clean tech wave and all this money went in and it was so ugly and people are still have a hangover about it, right? And now there's new money starting to come in, but it's like timid because even though it's coming in, people are terrified that the same thing's going to happen again. So many companies started out and went nowhere, yet there's these crowning examples of companies that are really breaking through. And I mean, Tesla is certainly the crowning example, but we're starting to see it in other categories too. Like I would put the Impossible Foods and the Beyond Meats of the world in that category too. And they do, they have something in common. And, and I think you articulated it well, where it's not cost, right? It's value and it makes sense without an impact hat on, but just happens to have a big impact as well. 
I haven't really pulled out exactly what the criteria are in a refined way so that I could then go and have take that thesis and go make a thousand other flowers bloom. But the thing that I'm coming around to is that if you want to have an impact on climate, or at least if I do, right, because I'm such a capitalist at heart at the end of the day, right, if I'm honest. And so it is to, it's not to go like, raise an impact fund or start a nonprofit. And not that there's anything wrong with any of those paths, right? But like this. And so I'm excited to hear the rest of the story. That was my long-winded way of saying I'm excited to hear the rest of the story because I think that you got like you saw it at Tesla, right? And now you're doing it again. And so that it's like you, it, you know, you are in a really unique perch to have a perspective on how to make a thousand flowers bloom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, when I talk to entrepreneurs that are starting out, I'm always pushing this piece of it, which is find those really high value markets. You know, even think about solar. So, you know, solar was around for a good 30 years before uh, it became as big as it is. And where did it go? It went into space, right? So you had sort of the spectral labs making triple junction gallium arsenide cells that are going to go on satellites. And, you know, those cost an crazy amount. And then you had sun power quietly innovating, right? For people who had money, wanted to live off grid, wanted a beautiful thing, wanted to, you know, there's, there's value to being green too. There's some, you know, people who want to do it because that's just what they want to do, but those were expensive. And then as that matured, you know, it could go to all these other markets. And so I think you've got to figure out what the, that high value market is. And so we, you know, when I was at Sutter Hill, I, I looked at dozens and dozens of different technologies, a lot of not batteries as well. But ultimately, I met a professor at Georgia Tech, um, one of my co-founders and Sila's CTO, Gleb Yushin. And he was working on a new set of new methods to make new kinds of materials for batteries. And so I looked at some of the work he was doing and what I saw was really good ideas, but not just really good ideas, also somebody who really wanted to build a business and have a huge impact, not just to do, do academic research. And most interestingly, from a product perspective, we could productize the material and all the technology and not have to build our own battery factories. And so even though we've raised a lot of money and even though it's cost a lot to develop this, it's cost us about 10 times less than if we were to go build a battery company and so we're not we're also not taking on the other piece of our approach is we're not taking on the capital to do the part that the world's already really good at so the world's already really good at making lithium ion batteries incredibly efficient there's about 200 gigawatt hours out there today of annual production capacity there'll be about 2 terawatt hours in sort of 7 or 8 years so 10x increase samsung lg panasonic all these companies make amazing batteries today. So we saw the opportunity to make a material that drops in and just makes that factory more valuable, every battery that comes out more valuable. And so that was also the other piece is can you, can you isolate the innovation? Can you isolate the technology and productize it so that all the venture capital dollars are spent doing really high value work? So with my company, uh, RunKeeper, that I built for almost a decade I now have the benefit of hindsight because I've had some time away, but it fits really nicely into like three distinct phases. And I know you're still right in the thick of it. So you haven't, you know, you don't have that time away to reflect. But if you look backwards, you started in 2011, this is 2019, you're just getting started on your journey. You've, you know, you have a hundred million dollars into the business. You raised a big round, you know, recently to really start to scale. So, I mean, obviously, it's working or some very smart institutional investors and strategics believe that uh, enough that it's working to write big checks into this, right? So I guess looking backwards, rather than going through the whole story, like detail by detail, or, I mean, I guess we could do that, but are there distinct phases if you look backwards of like, well, when we started, it was this and yeah, yeah. for sure. So <laughs> there are maybe, maybe three phases. I mean, first of all, the most important was getting the business model right. What, I, what we do today and what I describe was the exact initial pitch, it was spot on. We've never had to pivot. We've never had to change. And it's made the journey a lot easier in many ways. And it's gotten easier as we've gotten further along, which is a really good sign, right? That we're doing something right. It's getting easier as we get further and further along rather than getting harder. It was really hard in the beginning. So phase one was really just science risk. And where we started, you know, we, we started the company in an incubator at Georgia Tech. So I and my other co-founder, Alex, moved to Atlanta. And were you still at Sutter Hill at this time? I was, yeah. So I was at Sutter Hill. I met Gleb. He was at Georgia Tech. We decided that for the company to have the best chance of success, we would build it in Atlanta 
uh, right near Gleb's lab so that he could walk between the company and the lab every single day. And he did. And, uh, and he committed himself fully to building this business. And so we moved out there and we recruited a handful of Silicon Valley engineers, actually from the solar industry, some refugees from, from the solar industry, to come work with us and, and build the equipment and the processes. And we got to about maybe 15 people within a year. And we kind of stayed there for three years or so, 15 folks. And all we did was iterate and iterate and iterate on the science, just trying to make this product work. Because we had some patents and we had some technologies, but we really didn't have a product. Now, how were you capitalized at that time? We were very fortunate. So because I had the Tesla experience, because Gleb had a tremendous amount of credibility, because I'd spent a year with Sutter Hill, they funded us uh, with a Series A of $5 million from day one. They split that financing with Matrix Partners, who was also an investor from day one. And so we had great, just top tier VCs with vision and, and uh, patience from the beginning. And then we were also able to bring in some RPE funding. So we got a, uh, a three-ish million dollar grant, which was incredibly helpful at the time. And uh, yeah, and that was primarily it for that first phase. And is that a common thing, having traditional Silicon Valley type VCs coming in early like that for this type of science-based company where RPE is also involved on the grant side. I mean, is that a common recipe? I don't think so. I think that's pretty rare. They knew the risk they were taking, but I think it was you know, done in part based on, again, that business model that we identified of a high leverage product and sort of our, you know, the credibility of the initial team. So I think it's pretty rare. You know, I think if you're just getting started out of a, let's say a PhD with some technology, you're going to have to prove yourself a little further. And that's why I love seeing things like Cyclotron Road and sort of, you know, that, that model, which helps get a little more technology risk retired before you're going out and raising Series A financings. But we were fortunate to be able to go straight to Series A. Well, Cyclotron Road is interesting because Cyclotron Road, it takes you coming out from your studies, right, had one side of that equation, and then you post-Tesla had the other side of that equation because you had the pattern recognition of being inside an actual business that was going through rapid scale of commercializing this type of hard science innovation. So therefore, from the founding team, there's both sides of the, um, the equation. I think Cyclotron Road is phenomenal because, or now Activate right now that they're starting to expand to other, because they bring that first side of the equation. And it's interesting to think about how to better marry that other side of the equation and bringing industry in earlier that isn't just big strategics from a sponsorship standpoint, but actually is real entrepreneurs that know how to build ambitious blitzscaling types of real businesses. That's right. And, you know, I think the other piece is, is knowing how to be cautious enough to retire technical risk early. So that was something we spent, you know, we spent probably the first five years of this company retiring technical risk before really kind of pouring it on and scaling. And so sometimes, again, another thing that I think went a little bit wrong in clean tech 1.0, if you will, was people started scaling before the technical risk was retired. And you can do that in software because you can update the product in the field for free you cannot do that in hardware. You absolutely cannot do that with hard science because once you build that piece of equipment that takes you two years to build, you're not changing it that quickly. So you really have to take a much more patient company building approach too. It's a slower at first and then kind of pour it on, so to speak. It's a weird comparison, but I think a similar reason why a bunch of environmentalists bristle when they hear that natural gas is a quote unquote bridge fuel. Because it's like bridge, but it requires all this like pipelines and infrastructure and things to get built out that then are there and they will have high utility for however long, which means you're committing yourself, right, to a very long period where we're going to continue to emit. So I get, I mean, it's not exact enough. Yeah, you're committing yourself up until the moment yeah. that you have technology that's better, right, that lowers the cost. And I think it's more about really patiently retiring technical risk. So, you know, we were in that first phase, 15 people just iterating on the science. Then we raised the Series B in 2014, about three years later. And we spent probably a couple more years really refining the product till probably about 2015, we started building the pilot line after our R&D line. Did new investors come in for that B? We added another venture firm. And then in the Series C, we also added another venture firm. So all our, actually A through D, were led by traditional venture firms. Given that that's been your experience thus far, if you want a thousand more flowers to bloom with this kind of hard tech innovation that can also be impactful for the world, is the traditional venture model the right model for that? I think you need particularly patient traditional venture. So you can structurally maybe make that 
work a little better by creating funds that have longer lifetimes. Uh, some of the funds we work with are evergreen funds, which means they sort of, it's not traditional fund structure. It's not a 10-year cash out. They can hold much longer and sort of move the investment kind of down the line. And then some of the other ones that we work with are just have been extraordinarily successful. And so the funds that are extraordinarily successful and even the individual partners that are extraordinarily successful are able to make a different decision about the risk return profile that they would rather hold longer if you have an opportunity to build something that's $100 billion rather than sort of try to make a short-term exit for a few bucks. So I think it's hard to like say, oh, let's just bring in some successful investors to this field. But I think the thing you can do is create structures that are able to hold longer and whose maybe economics for the investors are more backweighted, right? Let's say it's more backweighted to the tail end of the fund or you know, you get a slightly higher carry when the thing becomes really, really big. There's different ways, you know, incentives drive behavior. So you think about how to structure incentives, but we were sort of fortunate, both the combination of the people that invested in us and the funds that they were able to have this patience and they had a lot of capital. And actually most of them didn't do much investing in this field. For example, the partners from Sutter Hill and Bessemer that are both on my board, they're traditionally enterprise software investors, very successful enterprise software investors. Some of them, you know, two of the most successful enterprise software investors, but they don't do energy tech normally, but what they could understand is the business model. They can understand the unique value proposition, how we defend. They can understand the market, and it's it's just a good business that happens to hopefully have a very high impact for climate change. And looking backwards through that formative period of A, B, and C, I mean, I know you mentioned that there were some difficult times along the way. What infrastructure do you wish existed if any, that would have made it easier for the company to navigate through those phases? So one part we were very lucky to have, which is very similar to what Cyclotron Road does, you know, because we were at Georgia Tech and we had our, this was a professor there, we were able to use some of the facilities. Georgia Tech had a fantastic incubator that we could flexibly rent space in. We had access to million dollar electron microscopes at, at fairly low costs. And so that scientific infrastructure, there's zero chance we could afford all that scientific tooling and equipment. You know, we probably had access to, I don't know, a billion dollars of scientific infrastructure. And I think that was essential for the early phase. You know, and then as we started to mature, we bought a lot of our own equipment. You know, we've, we've spent millions of dollars on R&D instruments to just analyze our materials. As we kind of went later on, a couple of things that we had to do ourselves that I think could be scaled more efficiently through kind of a central firm, whether it's, there's a couple of things like grant writing, navigating DC in general. So both policy and, and sort of grants is probably one. The other stuff is just traditional company building stuff, whether it's recruiting or, you know, running you know, payroll, just having some support, which we generally had just through the entrepreneur network of kind of what are the best systems for doing that. But otherwise, it's heads down and, and just iterate, iterate, iterate. So we were at the point in the story where there were 15 of you and you were retiring technical risk uh, for the you know the highest risk things first. And then you got to a place where it made sense to start expanding. So maybe we can pick up the story there. So, and actually, maybe one more comment on the retiring technical risk. There was, when we started, there was a good chance that just the science wasn't going to work, right? The physics and chemistry were against us. And so investors going in kind of had to know that and we had to know that. And so we a lot of how we built the company was to say, look, you know, whether the science works or not, we want this to be a, a great experience and a great company. And so, you know, we spent a lot of time developing a culture that focused on the process because that's how you actually get science to work is you don't focus on making it work, you focus on doing it right. Uh, and so we built a culture of, of focus on the process, not the result, and then the result comes. It's sort of the score takes care of itself type of stuff. So we got to the phase where, and it's interesting, we didn't actually get to a place where it was sort of obvious that scaling was ready. It was ready to scale because scaling was going to take two years. And so there was a bit of an intuitive bet that the founders had to make ultimately together to kind of look at each other and say, look, there's enough here that we're, we know we're on the right track and we're going to figure it out. But if we don't start scaling now, if we wait till we figure it out, it'll take us two years longer and we'll actually just probably run out of money and not be relevant. And so we started scaling maybe a year before it was really ready because it was going to take two years to build the first pilot. And uh, we made it work in that time. And then we sort of had the same moment again where you have to make these jumps where you see enough. And because we're deep, deep domain experts, we could tell it worked, whereas the rest of the world couldn't necessarily tell it worked yet. And so we sort of said, you know, it's not that it didn't work, but it's we could see that it was working, but we, it's so technical and so nuanced that it's not like a slam dunk, easy to 
to demonstrate to, you know, especially an investor who doesn't have a PhD in physics, right? And so we had to kind of scale a little bit ahead of the curve and, and then the technology caught up. So maybe four years ago, we started scaling. We built out a pilot. For the last two years, we've been running that pilot 24-7. Uh, we've been shipping that material to sell partners and, quali- and auto partners to start and consumer device partners to start the qualification processes. Qualifying a new chemistry for a car takes five to seven years. So we started a couple of years ago. Um, it'll be a few more years before we're really there. Now we're in this phase, we're about to go commercial. So you'll start to be able to buy consumer devices uh, next year that have our technology inside. And that'll be the first time in roughly 30 years where you have a fundamentally new chemistry in your phone or fitness tracker or wireless earbud or whatnot. There have been little tweaks in the lithium-ion chemistry over 30 years, but nothing that sort of completely removes one of the major components and completely replaces it with a, with a different chemistry, which is what we're doing. So how's that going to feel? That'll be really cool. And I'm sure I'll be stressed out about how do we make that a thousand times bigger by then. <laughs> well, you have the disease, the entrepreneur disease. Yes, yes. Never satisfied. <laughs> One question that I have is, so if you look out in your in your wildest dreams, what does success look like for Sela Nanotechnologies? I mean, looking backwards when the ride is over or when it's a big ongoing publicly traded entity or you know whatever end state is, what have you achieved? If you look at the 20th century, it was built at the ground floor of the of the pyramid on the science of combustion. So if you go to kind of the turn of the century, we started putting cars out there. We started putting you know, gas power plants out there, coal power plants out there, and that powered the entire century. And everything we built on top of that has come from the science of combustion. And what combustion really is, is taking hydrocarbon fuel, which you can think of as a single-use battery that takes hundreds of millions of years to recharge, and using that, that single-use battery, that energy storage. Uh, the energy stored in those chemical bonds, I think, it's all about the energy stored in those chemical bonds. When you go forward to the end of the 21st century and look backwards, I think what you'll find is that this century will have been built on the science of energy storage of batteries, where all the chemical bonds of hydrocarbons will transform into the chemical bonds that are used thousands and tens of thousands of times in batteries, powered by the elect- electrons that will come from solar and wind. And so in you know, my wildest ambitions is we are the fundamental chemistry that transforms the 21st century from a hydrocarbon-based combustion science economy to a, a battery-based economy. If you look at chemistries, there's only been four in sort of commercially relevant rechargeable chemistries in 150 years since they were first invented. And fundamentally, our mission is to bring the fifth one into the world. And so there are decades of scaling ahead And there's a lot to do and there's a lot to build. And so at the end of it, I've talked a little bit about we want to build what is essentially the intel of the energy storage industry. We don't want to make all the batteries in the world. We want to make the most important technologies that help enable those batteries, help enable the products that then use those batteries like cars and grid uh, stationary storage. And that's where we want to be at that technology layer for energy storage. I think the other thing you can look at is you know, the biggest companies in, over the last 50 years have always been either tech companies or energy companies. And what we're trying to build is fundamentally the 21st century energy technology company. And so we're pretty ambitious, but it's going to take a long time. And it's all about the process, not just sort of some short-term outcome. And I asked you the question about stages looking backwards. I guess I'll ask you the same question looking forward. So if that's your goal at end state, then how do you think about phasing? So in the next sort of five years or so, we want to be in our first car platform. I think five years after that, we want to be in most car platforms. And probably five years after that, we want to be in, uh, our technology should be in the majority of of grid storage. And grid storage will definitely come after cars. Again, the value of our technology is highest in phones or consumer devices broadly. Then it's next sort of highest in cars and then it's next highest in the grid. And so right now we're still in sort of the first scale-up phase of consumer devices, which is really this next five years, and getting to the first car. And then after that, it's really all about cars. And what's the biggest source of headwind, or I guess said another way, if you could change one thing that would help accelerate your progress, what is it? Right now, our destiny is very much in our own hands. We did just do a very large financing, the, the $170 million we've announced. That gives us capital to scale. We need 
more engineers and scientists to to want to do this. We need more great engineers and scientists that want to be building this. So recruiting and and of course at some level we're still capital limited because even as we get this capital we're very cautious about how we spend it. As you said, we're maybe the teenager compared to the the preschool level technology companies in energy today and so we're the front runners and some of the further capital stacks haven't been built out yet. Where where do we go get the billion dollars? $2 billion that we're going to need to scale and build factories around the world. So we're trailblazing some of that. So we're, we have to be a little more cautious, but ultimately for more downstream capital availability and, and, uh, and talent. And, and, you know, we've got the flywheel to then convert those two things into impact and innovation. And what role does government and policy play, if any? I think of it as two different work streams. And I'm clearly personally in our company, we're very much in build the technologies. Once you have technologies that can do things that prior technologies weren't able to do, it creates an opportunity for policymakers to say, well, look, this is actually better. So we're going to not even mandate it, but create an easier way for it to reach the market. We're going to get rid of some of the barriers that existed before. Or sometimes we might mandate it, right? Because take the fuel economy standards as, as an example for cars. The fuel economy standards it's possible to raise them because the combustion technology exists to enable car makers to go and reach those. When California uh, Air Resources Board put out the zero emissions mandate back in like the late 90s, EVs were just not good enough. And GM built a pretty good EV, but then they it, you know, had 80 miles of range and, and not that many people wanted to buy it. And so even though California was mandating zero emissions vehicles, the technology just wasn't ready yet. And so I think of my job is to create the technology to be ready. I think of people on sort of the policy side to understand what technologies are and aren't ready and write policy that helps, you know, that, that ultimately has the right on-ramps for new, new technologies and uh, allows these markets to thrive, right? But if you write policy that insists and mandates things that aren't technically possible, that's really bad. You get backlash, you sort of, you, it doesn't work fundamentally. So our job is to create products and technologies that, that policymakers can then rely on when they're writing policy that says we're going to go 100% renewable, right? Is it a strategic use of company time and resources to be spending any time thinking about or putting any energy towards the policy side of the equation? Or is it just heads down and focus on making the technology work? Our job is to be aware of it, and we are, and we sort of want to engage a bit and support others that are really engaged in it. You know, we're certainly not going to run our own nonprofit lobbying arm or anything like that, especially with venture capital dollars. I think fundamentally our job is to keep our heads down and build amazing things that have higher return on investment than technologies that have worse environmental impact. And then that'll drive the capital to us and that'll enable those policymakers to do their job. We're sort of happy to support them, but fundamentally, you know, everybody's got a role to play in, in making this impact and, and solving this sort of huge problem. One thing I haven't asked you so far that I probably should, given that this is a climate change podcast, is just, I mean, you mentioned some of the motivations that drew you into working in this area. It was a fascinating problem. And uh, I mean, I would characterize you as a very ambitious battery entrepreneur with the potential to fundamentally revolutionize the battery industry. And then, of course, all the devices and vehicles and such that are powered by those kinds of batteries, right? I mean, it's a big, ambitious vision. Where does climate change fit into all of this? And maybe this is less of a, of a CELA nanotechnologies question, more of a gene question. Like, how do you think about climate change and how concerned are you about it? I think of it again as I have a role to play and I'm very focused on that piece of it, which is I want to be, I'd like to be one of the best entrepreneurs in the world making technologies that have a positive impact. You know, and so I care deeply about it, but I know that I want to focus I want to make my impact through this technology innovation piece. And so I focus almost my entire energy in that. I've done enough math to know that if we make what we're trying to make work, it's going to have a massive climate impact and I'm not going to solve this problem myself. We're going to need hundreds of entrepreneurs and we're going to need hundreds of brilliant policy and and sort of poli-sci majors, you know, making an impact on that side. So I certainly care about it, but I also... I don't spend too much time thinking about it past the point where I know how big of an impact we can have. It's just all about how do we make this technology work as soon as possible. And for those that say we have X number of years to act and the IPCC report and the scientists that are essentially foaming at the mouth talking about how, you know, the future of the planet for 
you know, not just future generations, but for this generation is in jeopardy and floods and wildfires and famines and droughts and forced migration and things like that. I mean, is that overblown? Are they being paranoid or are they right to be sounding those alarms? I've studied the topic enough to certainly be concerned and think climate change is real and this matters and we got to act quickly. But I also think that past a certain point, you can get yourself to a frenzy where you're not actually being productive, you're being frantic. And so I do worry that if we sort of stir the pot too much, then it can have counterproductive outcomes where if we're creating policy not around what technology can actually do, but what we wish it could do, you know, we're going to drive costs sky high, we'll get blowback. So I think a measured approach, a measured sort of urgent approach would be is kind of the way I think about it. And then at the end of the day, I sort of go back and and say, okay, well, what am I going to do about it? I'm going to go into work every single day. I'm going to put in 12 to 16 hours and I'm going to do whatever it takes to make this work. And I'm going to hope that others come along and the best scientists and the best engineers want to come work here at CELA and help us make that happen. Because however long we have, we're not going to solve it with the technologies we have today. So we need this. And that's the sooner we can make this happen, the better. And obviously, I mean, you know, you're working on a very hard problem and it requires dedicated manic focus. And I certainly understand that. So if you don't have a perspective on the broader question that I'll ask, then that's okay. And it's not a judgment. And I, and I understand, but I'm just curious as you think about climate change and you, you mentioned that it requires kind of the, you know, the measured focused approach and not panic, which I agree with. Any thoughts in terms of what types of things. So maybe even outside of the work that you're doing, but just where does the most impactful stuff come from? I mean, is it innovation? Is it policy? Is it government innovation? Is it a market-based approach? Is it a price on carbon? Is it like, what is it? Again, there's two pieces. There's technology where I do think storage is probably one of the most impactful opportunities for innovation, where innovation can have an impact. And then I think on the policy side, it's, you know, how do we, how do we price externalities? So, whether it's a carbon price or a cap and trade or or sort of understanding how to limit the emissions, you know, I think that's probably the most impactful part from the policy side. And again, I sort of, I leave that to people that are much more expert in, okay, what can you actually get done? I think uh, you can sit around and pontificate on what the best thing would be, but what can you actually get done? And what can you bring to an international policy scale as well? I think that's a really important piece because if you can't make it international, then you know we can take our carbon emissions to zero in the United States and it'll have no real impact on climate change or the duration we have to sort of solve this problem. So you really need an international policy approach somehow. Other countries really do care. I mean, China's building a lot more EVs than we are, and they're growing a lot faster there. And then you need to you need the innovation and the tools. And the beautiful thing about innovation is those products, those technologies, they are global. They're inherently global. They're not limited to one country or another. So, you know, that's um, you've got to do both of those things. But, you know, I personally think you've got to do it at a global scale. And that's a lot more daunting than just even changing D.C., and uh, going back to what we talked about uh, much earlier in the discussion where we were talking about EV adoption and battery proliferation and solar and wind you know, becoming ubiquitous and, and things like that. I mean, are we on a path where all we need now is time and that's kind of going to do, you know, the market's going to take care of it? Or are there things that are missing or that we could change to accelerate that path? I think there's still things we're missing. I think we're on a good path with EVs. I don't think the current battery chemistry, I've, I'm deep enough in it that the current battery chemistry isn't going to replace all combustion engines. So I do think it's essential whether it's Celo or somebody else figures out better chemistries that get to even lower costs for EVs. I think for wind and solar, I think is on a fantastic path. I think other things we could change, we could simplify some of the regulations to getting more wind and solar out there, whether it's offshore wind or whether it's making it easier to install distributed solar. I think there's new business models for utilities and how they deal with renewables that are going to need to happen. And so I think there's a combination of missing pieces, both in regulation and policy and in, in technologies. But I'm an entrepreneur, so I'm wired like an optimist. And uh, ask anybody, you can ask my investors about my timelines and budgets. Uh, I'm wired like an optimist. And uh, and I think we, we have a real shot at solving this with the things that are going on. We just need to keep pushing and keep putting more pressure on innovation, bringing more capital to it, continuing the conversation on, on uh, enabling renewables to deploy faster and creating policy that, that helps bring that to life. Okay, so if you step outside of yourself and you just look at the landscape and see that Tesla is a good thing and that 
Seedland nanotechnologies is a good thing and that innovation can be harnessed to be a good thing if it focuses on this value-based approach that you've been describing. What are, if you could wave your magic wand, what would you put in place that would give the best path to more of these types of companies reaching their full potential? So more of them and more of them that break out and go on to have the kind of impact that they could have if they get out of their own way. I think continuing to nurture this ecosystem. So we need, you know, we need more entrepreneurs. We need more capital on the innovation side. We also need more investors that kind of that get it. I think actually one of the things that's missing is there's still very few funds where they're going to invest heavily into this. So I think there's still billions of dollars more venture that could come into this space and incubate this. The best thing about Tesla isn't that they make electric cars. The best thing about Tesla is that they got every other automaker in the world to completely transform their plans and their product roadmaps, or not every other automaker, but but a huge number of them, into making these 10, 20, $50 billion commitments over the next decade to electrifying their fleets by necessity. And they showed governments that they can demand more electric vehicles, right? That's what Tesla really did. It wasn't the car. It was, it was sort of the impact of that. And so, you know, I, we... I mean, we need more people to be inspired to do this and to fight the hard fight because it's not easy. It takes a really long time. There's no guarantee of success. And uh, so we need more entrepreneurs. We need more investors that give them the tools to go into the arena. For anyone out there who's listening, who's maybe sitting in your shoes post-Tesla and pre-Sela nanotechnologies uh, where they're looking for that big thing to sink their teeth into and change the world, what advice do you have for them? Do it. Get out there. Get started. It's such a better ecosystem today than when we started, and it's such a better ecosystem than when Tesla started. There's a lot of support out there. Make the jump. It's easier than you think in some ways, and it's certainly harder than others, but you got to take the first step. Anything else I didn't ask that I should have or, or any parting words for listeners? Like I said, I'm an optimist, so let's do this. We got to solve this problem, and we need a community that supports each other, so I think this is great. Well, Gene, this is great. I learned a lot. I think listeners will as well. And uh, the other thing is, is that I, I think we've uncovered here both that you know what you're doing is important and impactful and has criteria, I think, that could be replicated at more scale. And that's one of the things that I'm starting to think through is how to make those thousand flowers bloom. So you know, as that thinking gets further along, you may hear from me again. I hope so. Either join us in the arena or help support a bunch of other people who can. That's the fork in the road. Yeah. And and time will tell, but it's one or the other. So Gene, thanks so much for coming on the show. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Hey everyone, Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.